Welcome to Where Do You Exist, a storytelling podcast in collaboration with HBO and their new television series, Here and Now. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. Here and Now, from Oscar and Emmy Award winner Alan Ball, stars Tim Robbins and Holly Hunter and can be watched only on HBO. The new series is a provocative and darkly comic meditation on the disparate forces polarizing present-day American culture as experienced by the members of a progressive multi-ethnic family and a contemporary Muslim family headed by a psychiatrist who is treating one of their children. And what you're listening to right now is the fourth episode of Where Do You Exist, a six-part podcast miniseries recorded in front of live audiences in Portland, Oregon, Los Angeles, California, and New York, New York. Leaning into the themes of Here and Now, a diverse collection of local trendsetters share their most intimate true tales of family, identity, love, belonging, and finding one's way in the world. Today, you'll hear three stories from Los Angeles, California. Enjoy. Our next storyteller uh, is a writer uh, and the creator of the blog and podcast, Yo, Is This Racist? Everyone, please welcome Andrew T., everybody. Hello. Um, So I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is born and raised, a uh, small, quiet, suburban college town. Um, It's the kind of place where two... Asian immigrants will decide to raise their family. My, my parents had a vision for how I was going to grow up. Um, people have gone into talking about it tonight. You know, the standard doctor, lawyer, engineer type thing. And the thing that happens when uh, you're given these sort of like almost cliche expectations when you grow up is that, especially when you're a sheltered dork like me, is that your idea of what it takes to rebel is sort of similarly pedestrian and straight ahead. So uh, this all kind of happened around my sophomore year of high school. I decided I was going to get rid of all the like good boy stuff that I was doing. So I quit the orchestra. <laughs> I quit the Boy Scouts. I liquidated my comic book collection so I could buy drugs. And because I was a coward, I got into a lot of LSD because acid has like the smallest amount of physical paraphernalia. Like, except for the fact that you fried your brain, can't really get caught. Um, Which is also a good time to say uh, everything subsequent to this is to the best of my recollection. And... uh, Some names and details have been changed to protect the guilty as fuck. (laughs) So that summer, we, the family, visited San Francisco to visit my auntie and her sons. Uh, We'll call them Don Jr. and Eric. All my life, these guys had been cooler than me. They were, let's call them Asian thugs. Uh, Just to paint a picture, Don Jr., in his driver's license photo at the time, had a pair of Oakleys on his head and had a braided goatee. Uh, he looked a little bit like the guy who beats Jet Li's ass just before Jet Li gets his confidence back in the movie. He's just like a, a huge, scary guy, and his little brother, slightly smaller. So I was excited to prove to these guys that I was cool. Uh, So we get there, get to San Francisco, do 
very little bit of adult stuff, and then we sort of retire to the basement slash garage, which is like a thing in San Francisco that like is where thugged out Asian boys hang out, I guess. Um, I was telling them about the shit I'd been doing, how I'd quit the whack-ass orchestra, how I was like hardly doing any of my calculus homework, and like just dropping mad amounts of acid. And that actually impressed them, and they kind of caught each other's eyes, and like one of them said to the other, I think he's in, I think he could be in. Now, what I was in, turns out, uh, the next day, they gave me very specific instructions. I was supposed to, we, were, we went and told our parents that we were going to the library. We're gonna take the bus to the library, so we needed bus fare and lunch money. Uh, quick aside, I don't know what my parents were thinking. Clearly, we were lying, but they, let, they gave me like 20 bucks or whatever, and we went. And I went outside where we meet up with uh, you know, like if there's a name for a group of young, lower class minority men who mostly hang out to do street crimes, um, like a gang, I guess. I guess it was kind of an Asian gang. And my first gang job was to stand on the corner and, quote, just whistle if anyone comes by. And I was like, yo, I can't actually whistle that well, but they were already gone. And I'm waiting there, minute passes. I'm like, okay, I got ditched, obviously. When a van comes driving over the hill, uh, driven by Don Jr., and a door slides open. It's very clear, because no, none of us have a car. I realize, because it took me a second, they'd stolen a van. And then I got inside, the door closed behind me, and we'd stolen a van, which was dope. I was really excited about that. Um, quick, quick aside, uh, so it just turns out that the, there's a model of Toyota van from the 90s that only had four shapes of keys. Um, so if you had one key, there was a 25% chance that any given key would, would open and start a car. And if you had all four keys, there was a 100% chance you could steal a car, <laughs> steal this given van. So we jacked a van, and we were driving around, and we went to, like, the fisherman's war. We went, we, like, if you took your mom to San Francisco. We, like, went to the mall. We went to an arcade. You know, whatever. Maybe your mom wouldn't go there. But it was boring. It was literally, like... I could do this stuff in Ann Arbor. And that's when I had my first and wrongest revelation about the day, which was, these guys aren't special. I can do this shit. I'm just as cool as these guys. Um, which held up for about 20 minutes until we're pulling out of a McDonald's parking lot and we T-bone a car and I completely lose my shit. Chicken my nuggets are backing up in my throat. I'm freaking out. I'm about to reach for the van sliding door to pull it and run when Don Jr. was very confidently pulling down his Oakleys, rolling down the window, staring the other driver in the eye, and sort of like ask slash commanding 
we good before we just drove off and left this poor, poor person with a destroyed car. And everything kind of rapidly fell apart after that. It turned out that I was, in fact, just uh, an excuse for the two of them to get out of the house because the gang owed a teenage drug dealer at their high school $200, and he had told them they could give him a quote-unquote clean car, and it was all good. So I'm basically dry-heaving the rest of my McDonald's on the sidewalk while this fucking transaction is going down, where I have my real revelation, which is that as much as I want being cool to be something easy and some kind of checklist, I'm going to have to work on shit like not having an annoying personality and not needing the approval of a bunch of fucking tough guys to be happy with myself. Uh, quick coda to the story. Both of the brothers are happily married, family men, great fathers right now. Ironically, they're both engineers. Like, literally, both engineers, and I'm the one up here doing this. So, take what you will. Uh, your next speaker, uh, she's a comedy writer and director here in Los Angeles. She was formerly an agent at UTA and WME as well as Jack Black's partner at their production company, Electric Dynamite. Everyone, please welcome Priyanka Matu. I know it's not a contest, but I am the most immigrant immigrant of us all. <laughs> I was born in India. I grew up in England and Saudi Arabia. I moved to the U.S. in high school, and I became an American citizen at 25. I'm like the turducken of immigrants. I have lived in a house that was burned down by terrorists. I have learned to sleep through air raid sirens. I have owned a gas mask. I have attended college on an academic scholarship. I have conversation-ending stories for days. But the most important story of them all is the one my parents wrote when they left Kashmir in 1980, the story of how my life would unfold. I was going to be a doctor, marry a nice Kashmiri boy, also a doctor, carry on the culture, and make generations before and after me proud. Because Indians are relentless, my parents clung as tightly to this narrative as scripture. Their central tenets were one, that more education is better, and two, arranged marriage works for everyone. It is a logical and thus superior method of choosing a partner. How do you know anyone if you don't know their parents? You marry a family, not a person, etc., and love is for, quote, useless people. <laughs> mom and dad have always told the story of their meeting thus. Dad spotted mom at a wedding. They had a nice conversation. Dad went home and asked his father to get the ball rolling with my other grandfather, and then they got married. It's been 40 years, and they're still together. The complicated part, though, is that I wasn't supposed to date or even talk to boys until after my education was over, and my education was going to be medical school. Medical school was non-negotiable. Except I did negotiate it down to law school, which they still think is a joke. Who goes to law school, they asked. Isn't that just reading and talking about it? <laughs> yeah, it was, but it was a less of a time commitment, so whatever. Um, the entire time I lived at home, if a male person had the courage to call and ask me about homework, my parents hung up after word one. 
So like many Indian girls you might know, I secretly dated white guys I'd never marry through college and my 20s. But once law school ended, the weekly calls started. When was I going to settle down? Why wasn't I taking this seriously? Why didn't I want to meet so-and-so's son? If I was lucky enough to have these chats with them in person, Dad would also hand-draw a chart of my declining fertility over time. Despite my irritation, I wasn't meeting anyone great on my own, so I finally gave in to their setups, which each ended in exactly the same way. His mom would call my mom and be mad at her for rejecting her precious weirdo. These calls only made the mania in my mother's voice escalate. I was home for the holidays once, and she, crazy-eyed, burst out with, I don't know why you can't meet anyone. I made you a profile on shadi.com. That's, in Hindi, that's marriage.com. And so many men are interested in you. I'm online, I said. Not you, I made up a name. Can people recognize me? No, she doesn't live in California, but she's a lawyer like you. I've never practiced a day in my life. So these people are interested in someone with my face and an entirely different story. It doesn't matter, she said. You should see my inbox. I was furious at them, but I couldn't shake the guilt of feeling like I was abandoning my culture. Dating outside of my race did feel wrong, but I wasn't sure. Over time, my parents downgraded their expectations from a nice Kashmiri boy to any kind of Indian. And then, and then when I was 28, anyone, just marry anyone. <laughs> just marry anyone so we can cross this off our list. Marry a woman if you want. Enter anyone. At the premiere for Getting Sarah Marshall, I was a young agent feeling homesick and bereft. LA can be so horrible in that crushing, lonely way. I gravitated toward an older Jewish couple at the party who were sort of beaming into the crowd like it was the happiest day of their lives. I spoke to them for a little while because I just needed to be around parents. This happens to me sometimes because despite what I've said, I do really like my parents. I love them very much and I get homesick. They were clearly so proud of their son who produced the movie. And I remember thinking, this family seems very nice. Well into our conversation, their son walked up with a drink for his mom and introduced himself. And Rodney and I have been married for seven years. <laughs> um, there was something I think about that moment about seeing him with his family that made me realize that we had the same vision of what family looked like. And I think that planted the seed for, for our future together. So ultimately, no matter how hard I tried to break from the storyline my parents had set out at birth, I did arrange my own marriage. When I introduced my wary parents to Rodney, they loved him immediately. My father was impressed with his work ethic. My mother loves that he makes fun of me, a shared hobby. And our parents, most importantly, adore each other. You do marry the family, after all. He proposed on our second anniversary, having made the mistake of telling my mother beforehand. She called 14 times that day, <laughs> leaving no messages. When I called her back, worried something terrible had happened, she said she just wanted to say hi. We got engaged on a moonlit stroll and then filled her in the next morning. She screamed with delight, and then she whispered under her breath, we don't need to mention you were at a hotel overnight. I'm telling everyone it happened over dinner. <laughs> And it turns out mine wasn't the first love story she'd rewritten to fit their great Indian-American narrative. 
I don't know why it took me so long to get details, but I did a little more digging and preparing for tonight. So after you and dad met, and he spoke to his dad, what happened, I asked her yesterday. Oh, we spent some time together making sure it was a good match. How long, I said. A year, maybe? Wait, so you dated for a year? Mom said, well, we didn't, we didn't call it that. Of course not. Of course she wouldn't call it that. She wouldn't even call me 31 at my own wedding. She told everyone in attendance that I was 29. Uh, our last speaker of the evening travels the world teaching yoga and meditation with Wanderlust festivals and leading retreats and workshops through her self-development company, Rock Your Bliss. She lives in Silver Lake with her husband, Matt, baby A, and English bulldog, Rosie. Everyone, please welcome Mary Beth LaRue. I was never sure if I was meant to be a mother. Actually, that's an understatement. I felt immense doubt around motherhood. I cried in a lot of hotel rooms when my best friend and I would travel for work as we'd talk about our lives and what we wanted. I don't know if I'm ready, I said. I don't know if I want to. Then don't. Don't get me wrong, I love my friends' babies to the moon. I love my friends' round bellies and ability to eat all of the nachos. I even thought decorating a nursery might be fun, but the rest of it, unsure. I'd close my eyes during vision meditations where I was supposed to see my life and I just couldn't see it. Whatever it was, that was challenging when at least half the room experienced major waterworks, talking about their perfect baby, their perfect family. And my best friend pictured her three flannel-clad children summiting a mountain. That being said, after a few years of marriage, me and my big, bearded, honey of a husband, Matt, who was so meant to be a dad and talked about it on our second date, started to try. We're in love, but we're also kind of lazy together too. So it was not exactly a peeing on sticks and sex around the clock kind of gal. I figure if it was supposed to happen, it would, and I trust the universe had my back on this one. We tried, <clears throat> we kept trying. I eventually bought some of those sticks. I peed on them. I took the vitamins, still nothing. Okay, universe, I know I said I was unsure, but now I'm kind of pissed. Fast forward to this spring, after trying for eight months. I'm in some stupid outfit that I think is mom-like. I'm in a stuffy doctor's office with my husband and clutching his hand for dear life. It's a fertility clinic, and I don't like anything about it. After many tests, the doctor told us there was a chance we could get pregnant, but it was around 3%. He immediately ushered us into an even smaller, even stuffier room to show us pamphlets about IVF and other means of becoming pregnant. He told us we could begin fertility treatments as soon as the next week. Not even five minutes later, a woman shows up with another folder of paperwork about how to pay for said IVF. I was overwhelmed and I was in tears. We hadn't been trying that long. We hadn't seen a naturopath. We left. Matt drove us to our favorite ice cream shop and we sat outside eating soft serve at 2 p.m. I looked at him and said, should we just say fuck it and move to Bali? Just the two of us? Knowing that without children, it's easy to pick up, be spontaneous and move across the world. He looked at me and shrugged, maybe. 
The further and further we got away from that office, the more I realized this was not how I wanted to grow my family. But something else had bloomed in me, that I was meant to be a mom. For so long, I've said the words, sure, we'll try to have a biological child and then we'll adopt. I felt this, I said this, but there's a massive difference between saying something and making the leap. And honestly, I had no idea how Matt would feel. I noticed the way adoption made me feel in my body, vulnerable but open, soft but sweet, strong yet tender. I didn't feel this way when I thought about other ways of becoming a mom, and it made sense why I could not picture it before. I was trying to picture someone else's version of motherhood, of family, and Photoshop my face on their dream. Matt and I are on a walk one Saturday afternoon when I asked him, what do you think about adoption? He looked at me with big eyes and said, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's how I feel, it's beautiful. Everything that had happened brought us to this clear moment. This, this was how we were supposed to become parents. Fast forward to a few weeks later, we've met with a student of mine who's a foster adoption lawyer. She's been coming to my yoga classes for years, front row, front and center, because life is like that and it won't let you miss the people who will change everything for you. We've talked to parents who've adopted privately. We've talked to parents who foster adopted. We've met with a foster adoption agency and we've made a big, scary, beautiful decision. We will become parents through the foster care system of Los Angeles. There are currently 34,000 children receiving services in this county alone. Children who have been exposed to drug use or addicted in utero. Children who've been abused, children who have been tortured. Children who have been abandoned. Children who just need someone to love them. To see them as babies, as children, rather than a statistic or a headline. They tell you in the foster to, to adopt world, there are no guarantees. They tell you this, they tell you again. Then they have you talk to another foster parent who tells you there are no guarantees. You open up your home and a little heartbeat comes inside and there is no knowing if it'll be forever. That being said, I'd be hard pressed to find anything that is absolutely 100% guaranteed in life. I have found peace in this. Matt and I are strong. Our home can hold this level of uncertainty in the floors and in our hands. And the whole point is to love and provide safety and what an honor to do so. In our training with Extraordinary Families, a social worker explains that as an adult, the loss should fall on us. These babies, these children, have experienced enough trauma and pain in their short lives. We are adults and we have cobbled together tools and coping mechanisms. We have family, we have friends, we have resources. I handed a nurse my foster parent paperwork at a physical I needed to get certified. She looked at my paperwork, looked up and said, I'm sorry. Excuse me? Can you not get pregnant, she asked. I looked that nurse square in the eyes and said, I think you meant congratulations, not sorry. This is exactly what we want to do and exactly how we want to become parents. This was the first of many insensitive comments I've heard and will continue to hear, I'm sure, but they pale in comparison to the amount of support 
we've received. We filled out mountains of paperwork. We delved into our past. We talked about our futures. We've completed weeks of classes and met the most amazing future parents and social workers. We learned about burn marks. We learned about trauma and what will be asked of us. We've baby-proofed our home and we would await the phone call where we would say yes. Then on December 19th, this past December 19th, just a regular Tuesday, I am driving to an appointment in Venice when an unknown number pops up on my phone. This is it. We received three pieces of information. Newborn baby boy, seven days old, and needs to go home from the hospital now. And by home, they meant ours. I pictured so many scenarios, so many. All boys, for some reason, always toddlers. I even hung the soft ornaments on the bottom ring of the Christmas tree for that reason. But one I just did not picture was a helpless newborn baby boy. I did not picture walking into a hospital and leaving with a baby. A lot of things happened in those next few minutes. I called my husband. He said, oh God, it's him, isn't it? We called our social worker and we said yes. I canceled my appointment. I took 10 deep breaths. I got on the 10 and drove home as calmly as possible. <laughs> we unboxed the car seat. We got in the car. We texted our families and we drove to the hospital. We didn't know his name. We didn't know what he looked like. We knew three pieces of information about this human we are about to meet, bring into our home, and love like we had birthed him into existence ourselves. It was a free fall into trust like we'd never known. You know that exercise where you'd fall backwards and someone would always catch you? We were doing that but off the Grand Canyon and were unsure of who or what was at the bottom. For a moment, I wondered, who will catch me? But then I realized, I'm here to catch him. I've been caught my whole life, comforted and supported. I'm here to catch him. And even after all the classes we took, the books I read, the foster and adoptive mamas I connected with, I was scared. Who would I be? Would I be good at this? We pulled up to the hospital, left the car seat there, walked in, wrong building, <laughs> left that one, walked into the other one, got a name tag, and started down the hall. My entire body was vibrating. Anticipation, excitement, fear. Honestly, in retrospect, it was already vibrating with love stepped up to the nursery door. A nurse waved us in, and then there he was, right there in the middle of the room in a clear bassinet. I could see him from the side, loads of dark brown hair and big brown eyes. My eyes welled up with tears, and I walked over to place my hand on his very tiny back. There you are. You are perfect, and I love you. I recognized him instantly. I loved him even before I recognized him. As I looked up at the nurse in tears, I asked, where are the other babies? 
She shrugged. With their mothers, of course. I've now had the honor of being a mother to baby A for the past seven weeks. These weeks have been the most sleep-deprived, deeply in love moments of my entire life. A lot of our day is filled with normal baby and mama stuff. Filling bottles, singing to him, getting pooped on, getting peed on, walking around the neighborhood trying to get him to fall asleep, staring at him in wonder. And then parts of our day are very different. We see social workers. We receive court documents. We take him to get assessed. We fill out more paperwork. We see more social workers. I was in a store a few weeks ago, and a few of the women asked about my son. He was so small, and I was so upright and slightly together. Did you just give birth? As we talked more, I started to explain my husband and I are foster parents, and we would someday adopt. Maybe baby A, maybe not. One of the women looked at me and asked, should you get so attached? I was taken aback. The answer is an absolute yes. This is a tiny little boy who had nowhere to go. I'm a 34-year-old woman with every ounce of support in the world. Family, enough money, a job, sobriety, white privilege, a yoga practice. <laughs> every day when I wake up, I tell baby A, I'm going to do my best. And my best, surprisingly enough, has him sleeping soundly, relaxing in my arms, gaining lots of pudgy rolls around his belly and his chin. My best is just what he needs. And I'm so attached to him, I'd give him anything he asked for. A woman came by the other day to assess him. She asked what my goal for baby A was. What do you mean? Anything, anytime, what's your goal for him? My eyes welled up with tears. I want him to feel beyond safe. I want him to feel empowered. I want him to know he can do anything he wants in this life. I want him to be kind, and I want him to help others. God, I want it so much, my heart explodes when I picture it. He's our family for life. Whether or not I get to watch him take his first steps, or sing in a school play, or go to his first dance, or receive his diploma. He's in our hearts forever. There are souls that are meant for us, and they make their way to us exactly as they're supposed to. This path chose us. It was written. I know that I sat in that fertility office, and I heard that news, so I'd go home and make a call that would change me forever. There was a little soul that needed to make his way to us, and that's baby A. And I know there's more coming our way. Now all we can do is love and trust and lean into the present. Where Do You Exist is produced by Little Everywhere in collaboration with HBO's Here and Now. Produced by Alan Ball, Peter McDesey, and David Noller. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. Come back next week for more. <laughs>